Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what is the relationship between lobbyists and Congress? My guest is Timothy Lapira. He is a professor of political science at James Madison University and a faculty affiliate at the Center for Effective Lawmaking at the University of Virginia. Tim, I should add, is the lead editor of our volume, Congress Overwhelm, the Decline of Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. But even more relevant to the subject of this podcast episode is that Professor Lapira co-authored the book, Revolving Door Lobbying, Public Service, Private Influence, and the Unequal Representation of Interests. This makes him an especially apt person to answer the question for us, what is the relationship between lobbyists and Congress? Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Let's start very simply with the definition of a lobbyist. Now, under the First Amendment, anyone can petition the government for redress of grievances, as the Constitution says. So plenty of people do talk to Congress and the executive branch and judiciary, for that matter. In fact, in my job at a think tank, I am often asked to comment on bills or testify before Congress by congressional staff or even legislators who will approach me. But I'm not a lobbyist. So what makes a lobbyist a lobbyist? This is a great question. It's one that's uh, often misunderstood. So there's really many definitions of what a, a lobbyist is, but I tend to think of there's two ways to think about this. First, the more comprehensive sort of academic version of thinking about a lobbyist. It could be go by the name of policy advocate, government relations professional, policy strategist, or, or something along those lines. These are people who make money to represent other people's interests. Those interests are typically going to be collected in organizations, but it's not just representing those interests and speaking. It's uh, it's representing those interests in the policymaking process. There has to be a connection between the private sector and the government. Right? So that's a very broad uh, uh, definition. There is further a statutory definition, primarily through the Lobbying Disclosure Act of 1995, which has been updated a, a number of times. In that law, there's a three-test definition of what a lobbyist is. First, they have to earn money, and there's a minimum amount of money that's frankly not all that much given the size of the lobbying industry. It's about $5,000 a month. Second, they have to contact more than one government official. The purpose of this in the law, of course, is not to simply capture everyone, as you suggested, who might want to call up their member of Congress and say, you know, vote for the bill or, uh, or vote against the nominee or, or, or what have you. Um, the third point of the, uh, of the definition is most critical and frankly controversial, is that the lobbyist must spend more than 20 percent of her time on lobbying services in a given three month reporting period. 
Now, Senator Levin, when he originally wrote this law, the intent here was that he was hearing from a lot of CEOs from major corporations who said, you know, frequently CEOs are picking up the phone and calling senators. It's it's a necessary part of their job, but they don't consider themselves lobbyists and they're not uh, in, in many respects that way. Right. So the idea was to, to try to capture who are the day to day routine professional lobbyists. And this 20 percent definition was sort of picked out of thin air. Um, if we think about it, that might be one full day in a five-day week is 20% of your time. And this was intended to not capture just everybody in a, in a given organization. The problem with that, as we'll see, is, is that uh, um, a lobbyist could define the fact that they're spending 19% of their time on lobbying services and therefore not be a lobbyist, which is, uh, frankly, pretty disingenuous. Well, we have this category called yeah. lobbyists. Why do we have lobbyists and are they helpful to Congress in any way or are they just the bane of the legislative process? Yeah, it's a good question. I often pose this to, to my students uh, to think about it this way. Are lobbyists good or bad for democracy? The answer is yes. Right. So it partly depends on what your perspective is. I don't like lobbyists who are taking on positions that I uh, disagree with or oppose. I do like advocates who are uh, uh, speaking on my behalf uh, and, and representing my own interests. But the real answer to your question here is that every person has a set of political interests by nature. We all have jobs. We pay taxes. We use roads. We are, are protected with the common defense and what, whatnot. We all have a, uh, a idiosyncratic set of interests. And what lobbyists are doing I would say we all have interests that deserve a voice, right? And that's the First Amendment part. Uh, um, and what lobbyists are doing is acting on our behalf to be our voice because we're busy with our day jobs and we're busy raising kids and uh, um, and doing the shopping, right? Um, we don't have time every day to walk up to Capitol Hill uh, um, and and, uh, and 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 communicate what our uh, what our interests are. So. Lobbyists act as our as our agents and as our representatives, um, much like a lawyer might act on our behalf in, in court. Lobbyists have highly specialized expertise as well. Right. These are typically not just random people off the street who uh, who pe people would be willing to pay uh, to represent their interests. They have technical policy knowledge. They have experience in and around decision-making venues like Congress or the White House. And they also have uh, really dense professional networks, typically in and around the government, that it, uh, where they can pick up the phone and call somebody and they'll call them back, or, or they know who to call with a particular question or who to communicate an interest to. So in that sense, they're serving citizens and uh, as, as our representatives and our voice and they're carrying uh, they're able to speak much better than we are even on behalf of our own interests because they know the backgrounds and they know who to talk to on Congress's side or the or just more generally in in the government including the executive they're also very useful because of their expertise members of Congress in particular Congress is uh, the universe of problems that Congress could be asked to resolve, is everything, right? meaning that any given member of Congress can't possibly highly specialize the way that a, a, a lobbyist might. So that means 
uh, um, uh, members of Congress are human and they have some blind spots and they have some spaces where they just don't know the ins and outs of a given problem or a solution or a proposed law. So it's it's useful to rely on experts. And uh, those uh, experts are often uh, uh, lobbyists, as well as think tank scholars and other folks in industry or in, in, a, in a, a social organization, what, what have you. So um, they are providing a, a, a very uh, a good service uh, to, to government. Now, that's not to say that they're providing that service for free or without any prejudice, right? They are representing a very particular perspective and a, a highly specialized uh, uh, interest in a fight that might be, you know, all policy conflicts are, after all, conflicts, right? And there are disagreements among several people or groups of people who see differently, right? So they're going to represent their own perspective. Uh, um, and what that means is oftentimes there are some perspectives that are better represented uh, than others. So when it comes to uh, our lobbyists, good or bad for democracy, they're good because they do uh, provide that service, uh, um, but they're not always good because they're not always representing interests equally. That's excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Now let's talk about money. That word came up a short time ago. One of the common claims about lobbyists is that they buy legislators' votes. They say, hey, take this position and we'll give a whole bunch of money to your campaign. Do legislators get bought? Is that a typical sort of thing that happens in Washington, D.C.? Or are lobbyists mostly giving money to legislators who already have positions that coincide or are the same as what the lobbyists what? Yeah, this is a great question. It's also, uh, I think, largely understood um, in particular how we discuss the role of lobbyists and organized interests in the media and, um, frankly, the, the very politicians we're talking about as, as well. Lobbyists don't walk around the Capitol with bags of cash to hand out. They, they just that's not how it works, both literally or figuratively. Lobbyists are often going to be uh, um, making campaign donations themselves uh, and uh, um, with uh, uh, working with campaign strategists, they'll be offer, offering advice about uh, uh, to their clients and those who they represent about uh, who might be best to, to give money to. And the number one uh, uh, category of legislator or politician by far, and it's not even close, is to give money to people you already agree with. Right. So. Senators, on average, are raising tens of millions of dollars uh, for re-election. They're not going to remember one $5,000 check. $5,000 might be a lot of money to you and me, but in the collective, uh, it's going to get drowned out, right? So if, if you think about how to give money strategically, you're going to give it to those who you agree with and who are most likely to get re-elected, and even on top of that, who are most likely to be sitting on the committees in Congress um, that are going to be most closely regulating your interests. The idea is if you have your friends there, that's a better starting position in a policy conflict than to try to play catch up and try to explain your way out of a paper bag in order to uh, uh, get members of Congress to ostensibly change their mind uh, on issues, which is uh, exceedingly rare and, and difficult to do. So that's not to say that members of Congress and senators never change their mind based after meeting with, with a lobbyist. As I said before, lawmakers don't know everything. They can't be expected to know everything. And they're often going to be uh, um, uh, uh, seeking out good expert and highly specialized information from 
from lobbyists, among others. And uh, sometimes what they hear, they're going to agree with and they'll, they'll, they'll change their mind. It's going to be rare, I would say, when people are in those positions, when members of Congress are in their, those positions, to consider what the donors want first. When I've worked for members of Congress in the past and we've had to really respond to, to thorny or potentially risky policy questions, we go through a whole list of potential stakeholders or, or, or people who might have an interest in this policy we're making, starting with constituents and voters and potential voters, um, as well as fellow partisans, party leaders, major employers in my state or my district. And um, if those, uh, if, if thinking through a problem while thinking through those stakeholders doesn't lead to a good answer, then I might be open to persuasion from a lobbyist. Um, but a very general, and, and not just a lobbyist, a lobbyist who has given me money. So it's not that it never happens, but it's typically something that's relatively lower on the totem pole. And lobbyists in the special interests on the outside are not typically giving money in order to anticipate changing somebody's mind in the future. It's a much better bet uh, uh, to bet on uh, somebody you already group, agree with to, so to make sure that they're in the, the right position to make decisions that are more likely than not uh, uh, going to satisfy you and your interests. Yeah, yeah. That brings to mind something that uh, appears in your book on uh, revolving door lobbying, this idea of lobbying being not just an offensive maneuver that an organized interest might pursue, but rather a defensive one, a form of insurance to prevent things from not happening, that you don't want to happen, something that might be damaging to the uh, industry or interest that you represent. In fact, I, you know, I've actually read stories of lobbying firms getting involved at the primary process where candidates are trying to vie for the chance just to run for office and the lobbyists will get involved and try to back the person that they think has the attitudes and the views that best suit their clients, right? Absolutely, right? So, so in, in the book, in our book on revolving door lobbying, we, we tried to imagine or rethink exactly what it was. What, what is this financial mo motivation to hire certain kinds of lobbyists, right? And a typical story that has been sort of dominant in, uh, in, in the scholarly discussions of the past 30, 40 years is that organizations, and particularly corporations that have plenty of cash to go around, are going to be, uh, uh, will we'll be hiring lobbyists as an investment, right? They're looking to invest in the policy process with the hopes that that investment will return something uh, uh, in, in the process. That could be a tax break. It could be a reducing costs of regulation. It could be a grant or, a, or even a program of which the federal government is a customer of this corporation, right? So there's any number of ways that private organizations are going to be extracting largesse out of government. But the problem with that is, is that when, when we observe these things happening, a tax break for a corporation or new trade rules for a certain product, we only look at the wins, right? We're not looking at the losses. And more often than not, it, it is going to take 10, 20 years for a, a given law to become an idea before it becomes a law, even if it ever does, right? So 
What what didn't make sense to us is why is nowadays it's it's upwards of four billion dollars a year being spent on the lobbying industry, and frankly, it's also probably twice or three times that amount. But that's another conversation. But why invest all this money in this process that's turning up not much of anything? Well, the analogy that we use in, in our book is that lobbyists themselves are almost like political insurance, just like I I purchase every month uh, homeowner's insurance um, in case a tornado comes and hits my house. We've lived in this house for 12 years. We've never seen a tornado. It was still money well spent because what if the earthquake happened or what if the flood happened, right? So uh, we, we, we tried to think about this uh, um, as what is the motivation of hiring these very expensive uh, um, and and uh, uh, expensive lobbyists whose track record is not necessarily great because after all, uh, whenever you're going to have a conflict, you're going to have lobbyists on one side and lobbyists on the other. Even if somebody wins, the other half loses, right? So if we think about lobbying instead as political insurance, then we're able to think about what exactly are these risks that are being covered when you buy this insurance? Two main ones that we came up with. One is political uncertainty. After the past few years in American politics, we can certainly see why political uncertainty is something very important. And especially coming from an organizational or corporate perspective where you have to draft a budget and come up with a plan and hire employees, what CEOs and association leaders want most is some certainty, some way of being able to see into the future. And particularly, um, when it comes to what is the policy landscape going to be for my industry or my interest. So they, they, they want to have some kind of sense of what's going on. Lobbyists who've worked inside the government are going to be able to offer better insight into what's going on, even if they're not in the room where the decision is being made, right? Why? Because they used to be in that room. So uh, they understand what the costs and benefit analyses are that party leaders and members of Congress and presidents are all juggling with all these uh, uh, policy issues and policy conflicts that they come up with. So that's the first thing that they're buying, some insight into well, what might we be able to expect to happen. I'd rather get hit by a bad policy and know about it ahead of time, right? If, if I can't stop it, I'd, I'd at least like to know about it ahead of time so I can plan. The second major risk is I don't know if you know this, Kevin, but policy is confusing, right? If you've ever tried to read a statute or read a law, I mean, you need expertise. And there are a lot of landmines and unintended consequences and uh, uh, things that might uh, be un you know, that can't be anticipated, even when you're pushing for, for a policy that you want, right? So the second risk here is policy ambiguity. What it takes is some technical know-how being able to speak the language of a particular policy domain, uh, as now President Biden once uh, uh, suggested that he never spoke healthcare, right? So policy can be very technical. So you, all, you might be hiring to cover that risk of not being sort of caught blindsided in the minutia and the jargon and language of, of, of the policy process. All organizations have different risks about how they're going to be uh, uh, trying to cover these risks. And that, whatever they come up with, the, the, the roster of lobbies they come up with, we might think of as a tailored insurance plan for what it is that, they need, that they're hoping to accomplish. I mentioned your book with Herschel Thomas, which focuses on revolving door lobbying, in which I highly recommend to listeners of this podcast. Now, revolving door lobbying, which I didn't explain previously, at least not clearly, uh, involves individuals working for Congress or working in Congress as staffers. 
and then becoming lobbyists, and then sometimes going back to working for Congress. This is the revolving door. Now, how widespread is that phenomenon? And if I may rule in an additional question with that, why do so many legislators and former Hill staffers become lobbyists? Easy. Money. It pays better. Not just better, marginally. A typical staffer on the Hill might be able to expect somewhere between, earning somewhere between three and six times what they earn on the Hill. Members of Congress uh, uh, today, or last week, we just saw former representative uh, uh, Phil Manvela uh, uh, getting a job at a major uh, a law firm, lobbying firm uh, uh, in, in Washington. And he is probably, now that he's a partner at this major firm, he's going from earning uh, a healthy sum, you know, compared to the most people, a member of Congress is going to earn about $175,000 a year. But that's going to be a drop in the bucket, what he's going to uh, um, be able to earn as a partner at this major law firm. So part of it is is this motivation of earning more money, but that's not that's not everything. What motivates people to to go into Congress, whether it's a politician or a staffer, is is a public service motivation, right? We want to do good, we want to contribute to the common good, and we want to we want to be in the halls of power and uh, and and try to contribute in any way we can to to making this world a little bit better of a place. Uh, um, than when we left it, right? And that's a strong motivation. And many of us are, would be willing to give up a little bit of money in order to have that position. But then you come up against the very stark reality of after having done that for a few years, that you can't afford to live in Washington, D.C. anymore. And um, it's very difficult to, to maintain that for a long period of time. So what we're typically seeing these days, and Kevin, this even comes from the work that we did together when we surveyed uh, some current staffer, which is largely motivated by this revolving door lobbyist question, is that most staffers in Congress aren't going to stay two full Congresses. They're going to stay about two and a half to three years. And they're often going to be leaving before they, they're the ripe old age of 30. And why are they doing that? It's because that's typically when they're going to be moving on to, uh, to, to, to needing more resources to, to buy a house, raise a family, and, and what have you. But the real question is, what is, what is driving? Uh, why is the, the interest group side of this equation so much more uh, uh, lucrative, right? Um, it would be understandable if it was slightly uh, a little bit more because it's the private sector after all, and, and, and they're not subject to things like government shutdowns and budget and, and, and blank budgets and, and whatnot. But really what is driving the monumental uh, change by orders of magnitude in, in pay um, is the, the, the fact that Congress over the past 30 years has divested or disinvested so much in its own internal policy expertise that expertise has become so much more valuable outside of Congress. If Congress is not willing to pay for uh, the best and the brightest, and not only pay them to, to retain them in this labor market that is going to include uh, um, the, the corporate side that has money to burn, then they're not, they're simply not, have not been able to keep up, right? But most of these people have developed these professional backgrounds and expertise and professional networks that I already discussed. And that's valuable on K Street. It's valuable to a lot of organizations. And this way, a given uh, professional can still do much of the same work. Um, working in policy and trying to contribute to, the, to, to making our, our economy and our society better, but doing it with a better paycheck and, frankly, uh, uh, perhaps a little bit better of a working atmosphere, 
they're not subject to be getting yelled at all the time and and uh, with constituents complaining and not to mention the the cats and fights that are the Republicans and the Democrats that are fighting all the time that in a in a lobbying firm or at an organization uh the work pace is a little bit more reasonable and uh and in many ways more fulfilling because you have a much more narrow sort of uh, task list to achieve and and uh, um, it can be often be much more rewarding so i think with all these things combined, uh, with all these changes in in our politics, it has become so much more uh, uh, highly competitive between the parties and nasty uh, uh, in, in, in within the media um, and height, with heightened expectations about I- elections. That uh, finding a spot where you're not under the spotlight uh, um, of all those problems all the time, and you're getting and you've tripled your salary, it's often a no brainer. Yeah, that actually uh, calls to mind a story told to me by a lobbyist uh, I know. This is someone who spent almost three decades on Capitol Hill working uh, in a very niche policy area. It's an area where there just aren't a whole lot of experts around. And this person not only had the expertise, but all those years built up an awful lot of relationships and mm-hmm. had great knowledge of how to navigate Capitol Hill and to read the politics and to know when it's appropriate to have a conversation and when Congress simply won't be receptive to it. When I visited him in his downtown posh office and I asked him, how does it compare to being on the Hill? And he said, oh, it's so much easier. (laughs) I work a normal work day. I get vacation more often. The clients Mm -hmm. are really not demanding. I have a window office. I have somebody Mm -hmm. who can help me. And on and on, this individual gushed about after all those years of busting the hump in the legislature, Mm -hmm. that life had suddenly become quite sweet. Now, this leads me to my last question. Could Congress operate without lobbyists' advice? Yes or no? I'll start with the no. No, for all the reasons I've already laid out, that that the uh, the difference between the specialists and specializing outside of Congress and members of Congress who are uh, uh, w- without choice have to be generalists. Right? That they, they uh, um, that mismatch right there means that they're always going to rely on somebody with greater specialization and expertise. Typically, the way our system is made up is that those people are often going to be lobbyists representing these highly specialized interests, but they're also going to be the uh, the wonderful scholars at AI and other think tanks and universities and other forms of, uh, of, of expertise, right? So Congress is always going to need to know something from the outside. It's literally why uh, uh, Tom, uh, why, why the Library of Congress existed from, from the very beginning, right? That we needed the knowledge to be able to make sound decisions in, in Congress and, and in the White House. On the flip side, going back to yes, could, could they operate without uh, uh, lobbyists? I think Congress could do well by reinvesting in their own internal expertise um, and not just marginally. I think on orders of magnitude, if uh, um, if Congress could build up an internal uh, a knowledge base and attract the kind of, the kinds of expertise and specialization and talent that K Street lobbying firms are able to, to to attract, they wouldn't have to rely so much on lobbyists who are offering advice, but offering advice with their thumb on the scale. So 
by shifting to internalize that expertise, then uh, Congress would be less reliant on 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 outside experts. Um, and I, I frankly think that, that it's not it wouldn't be as difficult as probably your typical member of Congress would assume it would be. I think members of Congress are reluctant to spend money um, because then, then they have to explain how they're spending that money. They know that constituents think Congress is broken. So the question is going to be, how do you explain spending more money on an institution that's broken? I think the answer is easy. One, it's broken because you're not spending money. And two, there's no other game in town. Right? Congress does have the Article One monopoly on creating policy and laws in, in our country. And I think we would do well by reinvesting in, the, in, in internal expertise, which would ultimately make us much less reliant on, uh, on, on external lobbyists who are now making three or four times what they did when they were a staffer. All righty, Professor Timothy Lapira, author of the book, Revolving Door Lobbying. Thank you for teaching us about the relationship between lobbyists and Congress. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Mikkel Good and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. We hope you have a great day.